0: Father, we thank you for these words that you have for us from the mouth of Jesus this morning. Give us hearts that are ready to hear. Show us Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, And let me encourage you, if you haven't already, to to grab a Bible. There should be a few dotted around on windowsills. It's quite quite a dense passage, quite quite a lot in here. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, maybe you're tired of trying to share your faith you've been sharing your faith for years, for decades, and you've not yet seen anyone become a Christian. And you're tired. Tired of sharing your faith in a society that says you can share your belief on on political, ethical things, but not spiritual. Your views on uh, Russia, China, uh, your views on the environment, your, your views on gender, you can share that but not on religious, spiritual things. And you're tired of of no one seeming to want to know. What's the point? Is there anyone out there who will believe? Well, I think if we ask those sorts of questions, we'll find some answers in Jesus' words to us this morning. Uh, Some challenges, some compelling reasons to keep sharing our faith but most of all, some astonishing truths, promises, and claims that Jesus makes in these verses. Uh, if, we, if last week uh, we saw um, that to follow Jesus is to join his mission, uh, this week we see what it looks like to do that. Uh, our first point, uh, believe. Believe that the harvest is ready and that it's huge. From verses 1 and 2. Uh, It's been a pretty rocky road um, on the journey with Jesus so far. Uh, The first stop for Jesus on his mission was in Samaria, in chapter 9, verse 52. And the reception was hardly warm. Uh, Those Samaritans had no interest in the Saviour on his way to Jerusalem, of all places. And then last week, in chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, uh, we met three uh, wannabe disciples, each keen to follow in principle but it turned out that none of them had considered the cost and were willing to count it for what it looked like to live like Jesus lived. But things start more positively here in chapter 10. Uh, we have some followers. Uh, 72 or, or 70, depending a bit which um, ancient manuscript you look at, but, but either way, a lot more than 12. The kingdom is growing. And of course, we should, um, we, we should acknowledge that um, As we apply this passage to ourselves, this is a particular moment in history with these particular 72-ish men going out ahead of Jesus before his death and resurrection to proclaim his kingdom. Um, And we're not them, but we have, through the Great Commission and and the creation of the church, been given a similar mission after Jesus' death and resurrection to spread his kingdom. Uh, So there will be much in here that we can apply for ourselves. Um, but we have these these seventy-two-ish disciples now, and they're sent out by Jesus in verse one, two by two ahead of him, to go to every town and place where he was about to go. And then verse two. Uh, he told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What's Jesus saying there? Well, he's saying that like a field filled with fresh fruit ripe for the picking, if only there are enough pickers to get it off the trees before it rots and drops, there is a harvest. A harvest that is huge and a harvest that is ready. Not everyone will believe, like the Samaritans. Not everyone will follow, like last week's wannabes. But there is a harvest, says Jesus. It is huge, it is ready, ripe for the picking. So don't be deceived, says Jesus. Don't let the rejections you face, the unbelief you see, deceive you into thinking that there is no one who will believe. Wouldn't the devil love for us to think that? Wouldn't that be so easy to think in Oxford today? But perhaps we think this doesn't, doesn't really apply now. We're in a different era of salvation history. The gospel has gone out. There are believers all around the world. There are workers, uh, plentiful workers now. And in one sense, we'd we'll be right. That's true. And that's a great thing to praise God for. But we'd be wrong to completely contextualize this statement away, I think. Many years later, in his second letter, Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, God isn't stupid. If God knew that no one else was going to become a Christian, then Jesus would already have come back. There must still be a harvest out there. And in Revelation 7, we learn that people from every tribe, nation, language and tongue will be in God's new creation. Uh, But the Joshua Tree Project, a a research initiative that I looked at this week, tells me that 42% of the world's ethnic people groups have not yet been reached by the gospel. That's 3.3 billion people. There's a lot of nations and tribes still to hear. And so there is still a harvest, a huge harvest, a harvest that is ready and ripe for the picking. And as I've thought and prayed through those words this week, I have found them so striking. To believe these words requires a huge shift from the way I tend to think. Because I tend to think that the problem is demand. We've got loads of believers wanting to share the good news and nobody wants to listen. Not enough potential believers to go around. But Jesus says it's the opposite. It's not the harvest that's lacking. The people who are curious, hungry, searching, ready to hear. It's the workers who are lacking. The people who are willing, equipped, sent out to tell them. It's not demand that's the issue, says Jesus supply. How can we be so sure? Because the Lord of the harvest is the one telling us this. It's his harvest. He's prepared the ground. He's planted the seeds. He's grown the crop. He knows that the fruit is ripe for harvesting. We look up at the weather. We peer down at the soil. We struggle to see how there could be anything fruitful here but he knows it's his harvest. He's the farmer. We're just the hired hands called in to do a day's worth of uh, picking. It's his harvest. And he says that it's ready. So let's take Jesus at his words. Maybe we've been trying to share the Christian message over years with friends, family, colleagues, neighbours, We've had little response and sort of given up. We don't really believe that Jesus can or will save those we're trying to reach. But he says that there is a harvest out there. That doesn't mean that any one of the people that we might be speaking to will definitely believe one day. But it does mean that there are many out there who will. We just need to find them and tell them. It's his harvest. He says it's ready. So believe and go. Go pray. Our second point at pray, because the harvest is ready and it's huge. Still in verse two. Now the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus says, go. Go. But he says, first go pray. Doesn't it feel like the wrong way around? Isn't this a call to action, Jesus, that you've just given? This fruit to be picked, go get it before it drops? Well, yes. But no. I think there's just a, a second gentle perspective shift in what Jesus is saying here. If the first perspective shift was that supply is the issue, not demand, Then the second one is that I, on my own, am not the solution. I, on my own, am not the solution. The answer to the Great Commission isn't me, by myself. And that's humbling. Because I'm a doer. God's given me gifts, I've got so much to give, there's so much to do. It's humbling. But when we we sit with it a little longer it's also a great relief because I'm weak, I'm sinful, I'm so very limited. If I had to be the solution to the Great Commission on my own, we might as well give up now. I, on my own, am not the solution. Think of the the coach and the captain of the football team. The team just been promoted uh, to a new league. The date of the first game has been published. And the captain says, I'll go, I'll play, I can do it. I think I'm up to it. And the coach says, Well, that's great. We need a lot more than you. You need to go to the manager. We need a team. I on my own. I'm not the solution. We need to look to the one who is recruiting a much bigger mission team for work across the world and throughout history. And we need to pray. Pray for more answers, a far bigger answer than any person on their own could ever be. We need to pray to the one who owns the mission field, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send fruit pickers. And we find it hard, at least I do, especially in a a brilliant, busy, brainy city like Oxford. We all too easily slip into thinking that it's the action on our feet rather than the action on our knees. That is what God most needs of us. And Jesus does say go, don't get me wrong. But he says first pray. And I don't think that's fire off a quick prayer and then get to action. I think that means pray the whole way through. Depend upon God and upon his action. Before you consider your own action. Become a prayer warrior. He said that prayer warriors have to be our older, retired people. Maybe the key thing, uh, make the key thing you're engaged in doing right now to bring God's kingdom into this world, to be just praying for it, praying for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a great relief because every one of us can do that. Whatever our skills, whatever our gifts, whatever our capacity, our energy, every one of us can pray for God's kingdom to come. So the harvest is ready and it's huge. Believe that and go pray. Next, go. Go, because the harvest is ready and it's huge. This is going to take us from verse 3 down to verse 12. Um, in verse 3, Jesus does say, go. Go. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Don't pack a suitcase, verse four. Don't take a spare pair of shoes. Just grab your satchel and go. And don't dither on the way, stopping for long chats with the people you meet. Get on with it, go. Go take this message of peace, verse five. Look for those who will receive it. Be warned that not everyone will want to hear it. And there were some among us at the moment, I know, considering a call to mission, to overseas mission. What an incredible call to consider. If you can, go. Don't let worldly worries hold you back. Don't put off longer than you need to. But I don't think this application point is just for those who can go go overseas because the disciples weren't sent at this point to Africa, west of Asia, into Europe. They were sent to their local towns. If you know your Gospels, you'll know this isn't the first mention of Capernaum, of Bethsaida. And so for us. There are people waiting to hear the call of Christ all around us, in our streets and communities, in our workplaces, on the school run, in our running groups. Are we willing to go? Are we intentionally investing in people who might be hungry? But be warned that not everyone will receive the message. Our next point. uh, Be prepared for welcome and for rejection. Verses 5 through to 12. Did you notice, I wonder, as Elizabeth read it, um, how much of Jesus' instructions in this passage uh, focus upon what kind of reception these disciples should expect to receive, and then what they're to do in light of the reception they might receive. We're given a first hint of that in verses 5 to 7, but then verses 8 to 9, as contrasted with verses 10 to 12, give quite a detailed set of instructions for what they're to do, when people accept the message, and when people reject it. Uh, If they find acceptance, verses 7, 8, and 9, they're to stay in people's houses. Let them look after them, not worry about paying them back or moving on quickly so as not to be a burden. And they're to focus on the task they've been given, proclaiming the message of peace, demonstrating the power of the kingdom by healing, and telling them that the kingdom of God has come near to them. But if they face rejection, in verses 10 and 11, well, they are to go very publicly into the streets of the town and declare that God's kingdom has come near, whether or not it's been accepted. It's the same message at the end of 9 and the end of verse 11, but for two words. Verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near to you, to those who accept. Verse 11, just the kingdom of God has come near. And then the climax comes in verse 12. I tell you, Jesus says, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What day? Well, The day of God's judgment we see a bit further down in verse 14. The day when the kingdom of God is no longer just near, but is here. A day that the Bible speaks about from its first pages to its last When every sin will be laid bare, every secret will be out in the open, the deepest, darkest thoughts of each person's heart displayed for God to examine. It will be a terrifying day for none of us are pure and good. Our only hope is to repent and trust Jesus and to trust that his blood shed on the cross will be enough to pay for our sin. But here, Jesus seems to say that cities like Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon will get a better day, a deal on that day, than these Galilean towns like Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, that will reject Jesus now as these disciples go out to them. And that's controversial stuff, because Sodom, well, Sodom was the sin city of the ancient world criminal underworld, sex trafficking, drug dens, Sodom had it all. Tyrant Sidon, well, they were Israel-hating, foreign god, bar-loving, arch-Gentile enemies of the first century Jews over hundreds of years. Yet they will get a better deal at God's judgment than barely-on-the-map heart of Israel, Galilean towns? Surely not. Well, I think it's worth noting, they won't be just innocent. That's not what Jesus is saying here. They have still rejected God, those cities. The heavens declare the glory of God, David wrote in Psalm 19. Paul wrote in Romans 1, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. They won't be just innocent. They have still rejected God but they'll be punished less severely. Why? Well, Jesus says that we'll be judged more harshly based on how much we have known of the gospel, of God's good news message. Verse 13, he says, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. These Galilean towns have already seen and will go on to see an awful lot of the gospel. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, walking among them, displaying his miracles before their bare eyes, telling them the gospel from his own lips, dying and being resurrected in their own city. And yet they reject him. I think we get the principle Think of the awful case of Jimmy Savile, hundreds of children abused over decades. We watch the documentaries and we wonder, we see those close to Savile, those who let him in, the BBC, the people in Stoke Mandeville Hospital, and we wonder, how could they not have seen? Why did they not speak? How could they not have done anything? We'll be judged more harshly based on how much we have known. And the same is true for the gospel, says Jesus. Unless those town dwellers say, but these disciples were just men, how could we have known the importance of their message? Jesus says in verse 16, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. To reject Jesus' human messengers, is to reject Jesus himself. There'll be a number sitting among us this morning, not yet trusting Jesus, who haven't yet repented. And Jesus says that's a dangerous place to be, because judgment is coming. So hear that warning. If you're not a Christian today, But here too, there is still time that God is gracious, waiting for us to repent. He is not slow in keeping his promises. It's not too late to explore the Christian message, whether this is the first time you've heard it or whether you've known of it for decades. Why not start exploring it today? And be warned: if you follow Christ and try to tell others, be warned that many will reject, just as they rejected Christ, so they will reject his followers. So we must be prepared to be turned away, to be laughed at, to be thought fools for him, just as he was. And I wonder whether there's another application here to um to look for the hungry. God can certainly do wonderful miracles in the hardened. But Jesus, though he shared the gospel with all, he often seemed to make a beeline for those who'd be most willing to listen. Generally those who had the least going on for them in their lives, the the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the despised, the hated. And So I wonder whether there's an application for us here to do the same. Don't hang around. Jesus says to these disciples if they reject your message, because there's a huge harvest. Go to the next town. Look there for those who listen. I wonder whether in our evangelism, in our evangelism as a church, we need to think, who, who are we trying to reach? Are we looking for the hungry? Who might the hungry be in our city, in our communities? We're to believe, we're to pray and then to go, we're to be warned, and finally we're to rejoice, rejoice over your salvation, not your success, from verses 17 to 24. Uh, We skip ahead quite a bit in verse 17, uh, and we pick up the story with the disciples coming back to Jesus post-mission, having been out in the local towns, and they are full of beans, Uh, The 72 returned, verse 17, with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They have seen Jesus' power at work. They've seen demons leave people, sicknesses disappear, hearts and lives be transformed in the name of Jesus. They're overjoyed and well they should be. And Jesus is quick to affirm them. Yes, this is a spiritual battle. Yes, there is a spiritual enemy. Satan's downfall is being worked out in practice as they proclaim the kingdom. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he assures them that what they have experienced, what they've felt is true, that he has given them authority to trample, not, not on literal snakes and scorpions. Um, But to overcome all the power of the enemy, all spiritual forces, nothing will harm them. There are real spiritual enemies. The battle isn't between us and other people, it's between God and the spiritual forces of evil. But Satan doesn't stand a chance. He doesn't stand a chance in salvation terms. He's been defeated at the cross. He doesn't stand a chance in terms of mission either. And his defeat is being acted out in practice now as the church overcomes him by proclaiming Christ's kingdom in Christ's power. All authority has been given by Christ to his followers. What an extraordinary truth. But there's a gentle correction as well, uh, mixed in in verse 20. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It is amazing that we have been given power over the enemy. But don't place your confidence here, Jesus says. Don't make this your ultimate source of joy, strength, Assurance. Don't style yourself a demon remover, a Satan beater, a body healer, an inspiring preacher. Don't place your confidence here. There's something better. Rejoice not in your success, but in your salvation, says Jesus. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But maybe we think, um, wait a rain on our parade, Jesus. Way to dampen the mood. And to be fair to the disciples, it's not like they're claiming Jesus' victories for themselves. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They're well aware whose power this is. So why the correction? I think Jesus is saying, don't base your identity on your outcomes. Don't make who you are about what you do, even what you do in Christ's strength for his glory. Why not? One day you might not be able to do it. You might not be able to serve in the way that you now can. Think of the the great preacher who develops throat cancer and can't preach anymore. Or simply you might be failed by illness, by old age. Second, what, what you're doing might no longer work. We've been given authority over the spiritual enemies. I don't think that means that every single battle... Every single believer will always win. God might choose a path of failure, rejection for us for a season. And the third, I think it's a slippery slope from rejoicing in your successes to rejoicing in yourself. Right now, while it's fresh, you might be all fired up knowing that you've only got this gift because God has given it to you. But after a while, you get, might get a bit too used to the gift and start to think that, that you own it. That it's yours to use as you want and that you've got it because, because you're good. So don't base your identity on your outcomes, says Jesus. There's something far, far better to base your identity on. Rejoice not in your success, but in your salvation. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that when you were dead in your sins, when you hated God, when you had turned your back on him, had done nothing good, had nothing to commend you, God chose you. He picked you up out of the dirt. He wiped you down. He gave you a clean set of clothes. He took you home, declared you his child and brought you into his family. Rejoice that before the creation of the world, he knew you. He dreamt you up. He imagined you. He called you to follow him. He wrote your name in his book, the eternal book of life. Your name, if you're a believer today, is written in the one place that truly counts, the Lamb's book of life. And it's written there at great cost. It's written In Jesus' blood. And it's written there permanently. It will not fade. It cannot be removed. It's written in eternal ink. Yesterday, a school friend told me that he's got engaged. I don't know about you, but um, when I hear news like that, after an initial, isn't it wonderful? My mind often jumps to the question of, will I get an invite to the wedding? I start doing the maths, well, if they invite this person, that friendship group, that means I might, I might not. With Jesus, that is not a question that we need to ask. Our invitation is written in Jesus' blood. It's written in heaven. We have a place at the wedding table of the Lamb. It's guaranteed. For now, you might be a great evangelist, You might be a great Bible teacher. You might be a great counselor. But for all of eternity, you'll be a forgiven sinner, a citizen of heaven, a child of God. So rejoice in that, says Jesus. It's a much better thing to rejoice in. And then interestingly, he actually does so himself. Uh, Verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Isn't that incredible? Verse 21, the son filled with joy in the spirit says to his father, and what does he talk about? He talks about what they've done, all their exciting endeavors for Christ, he talks about what about what his father has done for these believers, for how they have seen the living God through Jesus the Son, how they have seen what prophets and kings long to know. They are so very blessed, and so are we, if we're followers of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as Jesus told these disciples then, so your word tells us today that there is a harvest, that it is huge, and that it is ready for the picking. We repent of our our unbelief, of how slow we are to believe that you have people that you will call to yourself and save, even today, even in this country, even in this city. And we thank you for these extraordinary promises of Christ. And we thank you that it is not about us, about what we do going out on your mission, but it is all about what Christ has already done for us. He's revealed himself to us, that our names are written in heaven. And so, Father, help us to pray. Help us to pray for your kingdom to come. Show us who we might tell. Lead us to hungry people who might be willing to hear. And prepare us. Prepare us to be welcomed by some and rejected by others, just as Christ was. And we long for the day when he returns. And when we will see him face to face. And take up our places at his wedding banquet. Amen.